0: support. Uh, Still many of our people put in a lot of time uh, to to make last Sunday a possibility in preparation for music and Scott coming to preach. And so I do thank you for coming. Now this Sunday we're starting a new series on foundations. Uh, What is it trying to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together when you think about what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. And this specific week we're going to look at at the scriptures. And so if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me and let's read the first four verses together? Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we might that we might understand your word this morning. Lord, not might, not so that we could just say that we understand it, but Lord, so that our hearts might be changed by it. So, Lord, would you uh, you use this time for your glory this morning? in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. September the 18th, 2012, Ariel Sabar wrote a, a piece that appeared in the Smithsonian um, Journal, which is, which is a major uh, journal. But Karen King, now Karen King, she, she's a very brilliant lady, very smart, too smart for her own good. She's a very a distinguished professor at Harvard Divinity School. She, she holds the... Uh, the Hollis Chair of Divinity, they're one of the most prestigious chairs for religious studies in in all of the United States of America. Prior to, to September, Karen King received anonymously an ancient manuscript. It was it was re- literally no no bigger than the size of a business card. It had like thirty words on, on eight lines on it, and she made a presentation in September of two thousand and twelve that presented. Uh, this as new evidence that Jesus had a wife. Now, she dated it earlier than some of the Gnostic Gospels that, that kind of say this, like the Gospel of uh, Thomas or the Gospel of Mary. Um, but she dated it earlier than that, and that was significant because some of you may have heard those uh, those other Gnostic Gospels, uh, maybe from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And so she dated it earlier, and she came up with this title for it, The Gospel of Jesus' Wife. And those people who were at that convention in Rome, they were ecstatic. There were people there saying, literally, like, "This is astounding." I mean, this great new evidence that we found. But then there were others that were asking questions that Karen King herself should have asked: Is this really an ancient piece of a manuscript? And so Ariel Savar, who wrote the piece for the Smithsonian, he began doing his own investigative research. Much like what Karen King should have done, and literally just a couple of weeks ago, Ariel Savar wrote a piece that appeared in the Atlantic, which is a, which is a major journal as well. And in that piece, here's what he said. I mean, it's a it's a long article. I can I can send you the link if you're interested. Only only Bible geeks would be interested in something like this. Um, but here's here's what he found. His evidence pointed not to Rome, where where Karen King first encountered this ancient piece of manuscript but to South Florida. Not to some, you know, mysterious guy, but to a guy, by all accounts, he was a hustler his entire life. His name was Walter Fritz. Walter Fritz had done graduate studies in Egyptology. He was a a very capable artist. Ariel Sabar wrote that he believed that Walter Fritz himself forged the manuscript, and then when he presented all of this evidence Karen King had come out and quietly said, with all of this new evidence, that she believes it is a forgery as well. It is very clear in both of these situations that Walter Fritz and both Karen King have an agenda. It is an agenda to destroy the authenticity and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures and also to tear down the work of God that he is doing in the church. And so as we begin this new series on our foundations, the next couple of weeks we're going to take some time and really dive into, can we trust the Scriptures? Are are they reliable to us? Should I live my life under authority from the Scriptures? Because if, if you don't have this foundation, then every other major doctrine that we're going to look at, like the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of who God is, the doctrine of sin none of those are really going to really speak to you because your foundation is off. Because it is from the Scriptures we get all of our knowledge of who Christ is and what He's done for us on the cross. And so let's let's begin thinking about the Scriptures. And today I want to make three statements about the Scriptures. Um, you can maybe turn over on a back of an outline or something like that and you can write these down if you if you want to remember them. And so three statements about why we can trust the Scriptures. First of all, First of all, it is a book of truth. Now, I know in many circles, truth is something that is subjective. Um, but in many circles, there are still absolute truths in our society. Uh, for example, 2 plus 2, if you're, if you're in school, 2 plus 2 is still 4, right? And so there are still many examples of absolute truth uh, in our culture. And so let me give you some reasons why I think the Bible is a book of truth. Now, first of all, it's a book of truth because, well, the Bible says it is a book of truth. Now, that's really what we, what philosophers would call circular reasonings, but it really is one of the reasons I believe the Bible is true. It, it says it over and over that it's true. Now, here's why it's circular reason, reasoning. It's like if, if I were to go to Lori's house and Lori were to say, hey, I cooked dinner last night and it was awesome. Well, how could I verify that? I'm just going on her word, right? I mean, unless I was there, I can't really verify it. And so when I say that the Bible is a book of truth, it's it's kind of circular reason because it's it's hard to to verify that. But here's why we must allow the Bible to speak for itself. How many of you like when, when you've seen a trial or something like that, you've been part of a trial, you've been on jury duty, and somebody is accused of something, most of the time, that person is allowed to speak for him or herself, right? I mean, they, it's about them, so they get to speak what they what they saw. And so we must allow the Bible to speak for itself as well. And when we come to the Scriptures, we understand that the Bible presents itself as a book of truth. Here's some Scriptures for you. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You can go and you can read the entire book of Psalm 19. It speaks of things like this. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The commandment of the Lord is is pure to say that the bible would present itself as not a book of truth would be like saying a fish can't swim okay i mean the bible over and over again presents itself as a book of truth but again you know that's circular reasoning and so we need to go a step further because saying that you know it's have you ever heard somebody you know ask well how do you know that the bible is true and they say well because it says it's it's true that doesn't really hold a lot of weight, right? And so if you were talking with somebody who's really not a believer, you were to say, like, well, the Bible says it's true. They wouldn't really buy into that. And so we, we need to go a step further. So here's another reason I believe the Bible's a book of truth. It's because of the eyewitness testimony. Now, did you notice what Luke said here? Those who, verse 2, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. And so one of the reasons we believe it's a book of truth because it was told from the point of view of those who have seen and heard what Jesus had done. Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark and John all walked with Jesus. Peter, he stands behind Luke as the source of the information that we find in this gospel. Paul was an apostle, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And so in order for for the Bible for for a book to be inserted in the Bible it had to come from an apostle, one who had seen the risen Savior. Here's another great archaeological piece of evidence. There is a manuscript, one of the earliest manuscripts we have. It's, it was um, in the 1900s, we, we discovered this, P52, Papyrus 52. It is dated to between 100 and 125 AD. It was discovered in Egypt. And so here's what that means. It had to be copied and then get its way to Egypt. Here's, here's what that means for us. That means it, it could not have been written any later than around A.D. 90. Okay? Jesus died right around 30 or right around 30, I think it is. So here's what that means for us. All historians will tell you that the Gospel of John is the is the latest one date wise that was written between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was last to be written. If it was written sometime in AD 90, all of those others, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, came before that. Every single gospel that we have in the scriptures were eyewitness testimonies. That, that's why we don't we we don't believe in things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter or any of those other Gnostic Gospels. They were not eyewitness testimonies. They were written many, many years after Jesus had died. And so When you think about eyewitness testimonies, Troy will tell you, any good detective will tell you that if you want the truth, go to the people that saw the crime, right? If you want the truth, you need to find somebody who had seen the crime. That's why it's so hard to overcome eyewitness testimony in a court of law. And so you have statements in the Gospels like Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Now listen to this the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why would Mark include those details? Because here's what he's saying. If you don't believe what I'm saying, go see Alexander. Go see Rufus. They're the, they're the children of, uh, uh, of, of Simon. And so if you don't believe me, go ask them. They'll verify. It. And by the way, these guys went to their grave believing that they had seen the resurrected cross. Here's another reason I believe that the Bible is a book of truth. The number of manuscripts that we have. Josh McDowell. Some of you have heard of him. Josh McDowell said this. He said, compared with other ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscript evidence to support it than any ten pieces of classic classical literature combined. There are more than five thousand six hundred eighty-six known Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Add over ten thousand Latin Vulgate and, and at least ninety-three hundred other early versions and we have close to if not more than 25,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament in existence today. No other document of antiquity even begins to approach this number. Now maybe some of you have said this and, and it's just it's just not right thinking. But, but I've heard a lot of people say, well man I don't believe in the scriptures because there's just so many so many manuscripts out there. And guys, you should be saying, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we have so many manuscripts out there. Think about it this way. Suppose I had in my possession a letter written from George Washington. I mean, man, it had been preserved. Just a couple of paragraphs. And I brought it to you, say, this Sunday morning. And I said, guys, I want to read you this letter that's been passed down from generation to generation in my family from George Washington. In fact, I want you to write it down word for word. And so I read it very slowly. You guys begin writing it down word for word. And say in two weeks, I lost that letter. Could I take the roughly 50, 60 copies that you have and get word for word what was in my original letter? Absolutely. Lori might miss a word, but because 49 other people have that word, uh, that means obviously Lori just missed a word. Miss Brenda might misspell a word, but because 49 other people spelled it correctly, uh, we can know exactly what was in that. And, and so because we have so much evidence of, of what the, uh, about the, especially the New Testament, we can be sure that what we have in our hands today really is the Word of God. And so the Bible is a book of truth. But now, here's the second point. The Bible is not just a book of truth. It's a book of truth about a person. If you're in Luke 1, go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. In fact, we'll be there the rest of our time. Matthew chapter 5. I want you to look in verse 17. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Tim Keller makes this point very well. He says if you only believe in the Bible as a set of truths... And do not see the message of the Bible that it actually, bec- it then it actually becomes destructive in your life. And so, in other words, if you just sit there this morning and say, "Well, I believe the Bible is true," but then you don't understand the message of the Bible, that it actually becomes destructive in your life. Now, let me let me show you how this plays out. I want you to: the Bible is a book of truth about this man that we call Jesus. Now, Jesus said here, he didn't come to dis- destroy the law or the prophets. He didn't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. So think about the law. All of those, all of those commandments point to, to Jesus. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, we see a lot of commandments that should scare us. Hey, it's not only wrong for you to commit murder, it's angry for you to be, even to be angry. It's not only wrong for you to commit adultery, it's wrong for you, for you to uh, even lust at somebody else. Man, you've got to forgive people right there on the spot, and we read that. And you know what we say? Man, that's good. You know why we say that's good? Because that's exactly how we want treat people to treat us. If, if I if I offend somebody, uh, man, you, you want you, you want to be forgiven, and, and you don't want people to be angry at you, and and all of these things. But when you stop to think about it, you realize that you can't do any of those things. You're you're all guilty. And see, if, if you just understand that the Bible is a book of truth, but not, a, but not a book of truth about a person, it becomes destructive in your life because then you realize that you can't measure up. You can't meet the needs. And, and then, it, even if sometimes it just gets to a place where you become arrogant and proud in your own life. Say, I know all of this stuff about who Jesus is. And it becomes destructive in your life. But it all points to Jesus. The law and the prophets. Think, think about the sacrifice. Every year, the, the high priest, he would he would make a sacrifice. He would sacrifice a lamb. He, he would spill its blood. I mean, he would kill this animal. And that sacrifice is ultimately pointing to a greater sacrifice that would come in the person of Jesus. Same time, they would take a scapegoat. The, the, the high priest would symbolically put the sins of Israel on this scapegoat and send it off into the wilderness, symbolically saying, our sins have been carried away by this goat all of those things point to Jesus think about the stories in the Old Testament all of those stories point to Jesus you think about about Moses being the deliverer of the nation of Israel from bondage in Egypt well that's just pointing to Jesus being the deliverer our deliverer from the bondage of our sins you think about Joseph being forsaken by his brethren sold into slavery, but then God God used that to exalt him to the right hand of Pharaoh, where he saved the nation. Well, that's just what Jesus did. He was forsaken by his brethren, his his countrymen in Israel. They crucified him. But then God exalted him to the right hand of the Father. and Now he's our Savior. Think about Jonah. He was in the belly of the uh, of the great fish three days. But then God delivered him from that, and then he became he took the the gospel to Nineveh. Our Savior was in the ground three days, but he rose again, and now those who place their hope and their faith in him are saved by him. Now, see, you can read those stories, and here, here's, and I've probably been guilty of this, but we can read those stories, and here's the, here's the things we'll say. Man, I need to be courageous like Moses. Man, I need to be faithful like Jonah was in the end. I need to be strong in the midst of adverse circumstances like Joseph. I need to be brave like David when when he goes and he fights Goliath. And we read that and you know what we think? I failed. I can't be brave like that. I can't do this. I don't don't live like Moses. I'm not faithful like Jonah was in the end. I'm not courageous like David. You see, and and those things begin to crush you. See, those stories aren't about you. Those stories are about Jesus. And see, when you go to Jesus, you're not crushed. He takes your sins. He takes your shortcomings. He takes your fear. He takes your worry, your doubts, your pride. And He accepts the penalty for all those things. And then He gives you everything that He deserved because He walked in faith. You see, it's not just a book of truth. It's a book of truth about Him. But now here's the final thing. It's a book of truth about Him, but it's for your heart. You know, something I've come to realize. Arguments for the truthfulness of the Bible, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. You see, the the goal of the gospel, the goal of the scripture is not to get you just to believe the right thing about Jesus, but it's for you to bring Him into your life so that He restructures the very foundations of your heart. And you see, I think that's the missing element in so many of our lives. We want to say, man, I've got the Bible, I've got this truth, I know that it's all about Jesus, but then we don't allow that to restructure the very foundations of our hearts. And when we don't allow the scriptures and the, and the gospel to restructure the foundations of our heart, we begin to get in this place where where we begin to think we're prideful because we know so much or we begin to get crushed by the weight of all of this. I remember when I was in college, in our Christian theology class, we had studied Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 like every day again at the beginning of class. I mean, just walking through it like word by word. And, and to this day, I mean, it's it's just a very rich passage about who Jesus is. I mean, it, it goes from everything to, you know, He was in the beginning. He was, he was alive before He came actually on earth, right? It, it goes through His incarnation where He came. It goes through His death. It goes, you know, to the fact that He's coming again. All of these points. And all that was just like fire in my bones. And then it was right around Easter, and I just read this great book by Lee Strobel on the case for the resurrection. All of this great evidence that just proved that Jesus really was alive. I remember preparing a message out of that out of that passage, Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. And man, I, I, I mean, I'm serious, guys. I could just remember just being so excited. Lord, people are going to get saved with this message. I mean, I just—I mean, I just knew it in my mind. I'm like, I'm going to present all this evidence, and there's no way that they're not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's no way that they can—they can deny this truth. And honestly, I must have preached that message in at least ten different churches. I mean, and the truth was just so overwhelming. But to my recollection, I don't remember any single person come into faith in Christ under that Why? Because the arguments for the truth, it's necessary. But it's not sufficient. If all you do is simply believe the right things about who Jesus is, but you don't allow that to restructure your life, then you're missing out on the gospel. If all you've done is simply just mentally said, you know what, I believe in Jesus, but I don't want Him to impact my life, then you've missed it. You see, believing the right thing doesn't change you. It'll make you proud or it will crush you, but it won't change you. But the gospel will. You see, the gospel is sheer grace. We're freely saved by the sacrifice of Christ, but it came at an infinite cost him the Bible is certainly a book of truth about a man named Jesus who stood in the gap for you so that he could change your heart so that he could change your life that's where maybe you miss it you've never allowed the gospel of Jesus Christ to restructure the foundation of your heart just being honest here's how it works you start going to church and you start trying to do this and you start trying to do this and what you're doing is all you're trying to do is turn over a new leaf, trying to change your actions. And you've missed the foundation. The gospel has to restructure your heart. If your heart has changed, your actions automatically come that. And that's where the scriptures point us. It's truth. Truth about a person. But the truth what we do is why don't you just bow your heads. Close your eyes. In your mind, I just want you to picture. You are the only person in this room, just you and God. And here's the question. Has the gospel restructured your heart? Now, maybe you've been to this church for a long time, maybe you're 15, 16, 17 years old, and at some point you have to own your relationship with Christ. You can't live off the, the, the faith of your parents. You, you can't live off of what happened yesterday. You've got to live off of your faith to do Christ. In and man, we could, we could go on forever thinking about, well, the Bible's true because of this, this, and this, but here's, here's the reality. Unless you allow that to restructure your heart, it doesn't really matter. I'm sure you can make the arguments, but your life will never be changed. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. It's just you and it's just God. Has your life been changed by the gospel of Christ? And if it's not, Man, there's no condemnation in this room. There's there's nobody that's going to look down upon you. There's nobody that's going to ridicule you. In fact, it's the very opposite. We'll rejoice with you going to invite you as we sing this song that you would that you would be brave and you would be bold and you would be courageous that you would step out from where you are and you would just, you would come and you would say, Pastor, the gospel has never restructured my heart today. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to go all in. I don't want to play games. So i bless you, would you? Lord, today I'm asking in Jesus' name that hearts would be restructured. Lord, that's why you've given us your word. Father, do it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? Would you sing. Would you come as the Father leads you? Don't wait. Say amen.